Good morning once again. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. As you know, unless you're new with us, and we welcome you if you are, we have just started a new study here at Calvary on Sunday mornings. We are studying the book of Joshua. Why Joshua? Well, as Paul said in Romans 15, verse 4, God has placed the Old Testament there for our learning, not just our historical learning of Israel, which the book of Joshua is definitely a book of history. But I believe what Paul was saying is that God is using Israel and the people of Israel, guys like David and Daniel and Abraham and so on, to be object lessons, to teach us spiritual principles that we can learn from and apply into our lives and grow as Christians in the New Testament period. So we're approaching the book of Joshua as an instruction manual on victorious Christian living. That's the way we're approaching this. We believe it's rich with principles that will help you live a victorious life, the life that Christ desires to lead all of us into. Now, as we've said, the book falls into three main divisions. Uh, the first five chapters, we see uh, Israel entering the land. So entering the land is the theme of the first five chapters. And as we said, if you're a believer who feels like you're in a kind of a spiritual wilderness right now, where you're feeling like, your walk is kind of dry, you're wandering aimlessly, you don't feel you really have a sense of purpose as a Christian, you don't know what God's got for you, and you kind of feel kind of very dry and disconnected and all, and, and it's almost like you're surviving as a Christian, but not really thriving as the Bible says you should, then these chapters will be especially meaningful to you. So entering the land, chapters 1 through 5, then conquering the land, this makes up the biggest portion of the book from chapters 6 through 21. And here we are introduced to the various battles and conflicts that the children of Israel uh, came across as they entered the land and began to fight the enemy to conquer the land and take possession of it. And a lot of these parallel the various conflicts and battles that we'll face as Christians as we seek to enter into the life of the Spirit and, you know, be victorious in our walk with the Lord. And then finally, in chapters 22 to 24, the theme is keeping the land. So entering the land conquering the land, and then finally keeping the land. And in some ways, this is one of the most important sections of the whole book. Because as we said last week, it's often easier, not always, but often easier, pursuing a goal and, you know, achieving the number one status, right, than it is to hold on to that. Israel, by this time, has conquered most of the land. And so Joshua gives his farewell address, encouraging them to keep faithful because he wants to encourage them to do everything they can to stay in the land because the devil is going to be active in trying to do whatever he can to remove you from this land. Even as once we enter into the life of the Spirit, we begin to experience the blessings of God. God is prospering and blessing our ministries. We have to always be on guard that we never allow the devil to get in there in any way, shape, or form because he wants to take us from that place of blessing. So this is a very important section that we'll see when we get there. And so we ended last week by saying, look, are you ready to leave the wilderness in your Christian experience? Are you ready for a new beginning, a new phase in your walk with God? You know, I think for many, the words of Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9 apply. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. I think a lot of Christians, that would be their testimony. They have not yet come to the rest and the inheritance that the Lord their God has promised them as Christians. Many Christians, although saved, 
have not really entered into that life of the Spirit, that place where they're really now experiencing the power and the victory and the blessings and the fruitfulness that they have been promised by God in the New Testament but maybe are not enjoying experientially in their everyday lives. So as we have entered into that first part now, entering the land, chapters 1 through 5, we find ourselves at the very beginning. And we've divided this study up so far into these points. First of all, in verses 1 and 2, we see the person of victory. Victory in the Christian life is not found in a program. It's found in a person. If you haven't learned that, please write that down somewhere. The church is obsessed with programs. I'm not saying that programs are evil necessarily, but you'll never know victory in the Christian life through a program. A program will never lead you out of the wilderness into the promised land in your own personal life. That is only accomplished through a person. Now, let's read verses 1 and 2 again. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. As we pointed out last week, it wasn't until Moses died that Joshua could lead them into the promised land. Why is that? Well, because Moses represented the law. We even call it the law of Moses, right? And the idea is the law or legalism will never lead us into the life of the Spirit. Because legalism will keep you in bondage. Legalism will be used by the devil to keep you, you know, defeated and condemned and so on. What is legalism? It's trying to do anything, even good things like going to church, reading your Bible, praying and witnessing. If you think of those things as a way that God is going to love you more, accept you more and so on because you do these things, that's legalism. And if you try to approach God on the basis of legalism, guess what? You will remain in a spiritual wilderness your entire Christian life. In fact, we said last time that the name Joshua is the same name as Jesus. Joshua in the Hebrew, Jesus in the Greek, same name. Interesting that there's a book in the Old Testament called the Book of Jesus. And it follows the five books of Moses, which we call the Law. And it wasn't until Moses died that Joshua, symbolizing our Jesus, could lead his people into that life of victory and fruitfulness and blessing. Remember what John said in his gospel in John 1, chapter, uh, verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law can never bring us into the life of the Spirit. Again, that life of victory and blessing and fruitfulness. Only grace can do that. The grace that comes through Jesus Christ. So we saw the person of victory, verses 1 and 2. Then we saw the promise of victory in verses 3 to 5, where God said, to Joshua, every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you, as I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. God promised them victory. God gave them the land. Everywhere the sole of your foot touches, I have given you. Not I will give you, I have given you. As believers, we're not working towards victory. Again, we are working from it. But just because God promised them the land, it was theirs. It was not automatic. They had to go in and take possession of it. Very important point. God has given to us many exceedingly great and precious promises, Peter tells us, in his word. 
These are our promised land. They have been given to us, but we still have to stand on them and appropriate them through faith. See, the idea of them walking through the land, and every place the sole of your foot shall step on, I have given you. If we don't know what God has promised us, how are we going to claim that promise and apply it into our lives? So, inherent in that idea is knowing the Word of God, right? That's what walking through the land was all about. God wanted them to know everything He had given to them through His promise. God wants us to be people of the Word. Because how are you going to claim the promises of God if you don't know the promises of God? And that's the idea. We have to walk through the Word. We have to know the promises of God. Because if we're going to ever understand them and claim them and apply them, we have to know what they are. All right. That brings us then to verses 5 through 9, a section we'll call the power for victory. The person of victory, verses 1 and 2. The promise of victory, verses 3 through 5. And the power for victory, verses 5 through 9. It all starts with what God said to Joshua in verse 5 when he said to him, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will also be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. This is very important. You'll never know victory if you don't know God's with you. Remember when three very powerful nations came out against Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, in Second Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat and this little country of Judah knew. They were no match for these three mighty armies. And so he calls a day of fasting and prayer. The whole nation comes out and stands before the Lord. And Joshua lifts up his voice and he prays to God, asking for God's intervention, for God's help. And God spoke. He says, don't be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, it's mine. See, we have to know that. We come up against these battles, and some of them are quite formidable. We have to know God's with us, and really, it isn't our battle anyways. It's the Lord's battle. Now, this promise that God gave to Joshua at the end of verse 5, I will not leave you nor forsake you, that promise was repeated for us as Christians today in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Same promise, where God said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. See, without the Lord's presence, victory would be impossible. Jesus knew that. That's why he said in John 15, verse 5, for without me, you can do nothing. And that's why Moses, because he knew this too. That's why Moses said in Exodus chapter 33, verse 15, he told the Lord, Lord, if your presence does not go with us, don't bring us up from here. Lord, if your presence is not going to go with us, we're not going anywhere. That's a good thing to pray. Because sometimes we embark on things that really are things that we have desired to do in our flesh. And God's not going to travel with us. In this. He's always with us in the sense that he lives inside of us. But he's not going to be with us in the practical sense to bless the things that we're doing if we're getting off in a direction he's not called us to involved in some carnal thing. You know, Jesus said, wherever I am, there my servant shall be also. You know, I want, to, I want to go where he's going. I want to make sure I'm following where he's leading. And therefore, if God is not in this, if God's not wanting to go in that direction, then you know our response should be, then, Lord, you know what? I'm not going anywhere. I will not do something where you're not going to be with me because only you can give the victory here. Very important that we pray and seek the Lord before we step out in any venture for him. You know, along these lines of God being with us, I love what David said to his son Solomon, who 
was just a young man when David was handing the kingdom over to him. Solomon might have been, I don't know, 15, 16, maybe 17 years old. He was a young man at this point. And so David says to him in 1 Chronicles 28, he says, Solomon, be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. I love that. He is going to be with us always until the work is done. And the work won't be done, at least in our lives, until we are taken to be with him. You know, one of my favorite promises uh, in the Bible is uh, Isaiah 41, verse 10. I'm sure many of you know this. Where God said, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. In the upper room in John chapter 14, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he told his disciples that he was leaving them soon. And that where he was going, they couldn't follow him. They couldn't go with him. But he was going to come again someday to get them, to receive them to himself, he said. That where I am, there you may be also. But until I come for you, I'm not going to leave you alone like orphans. I'm going to send to you another helper, the Holy Spirit. And he will abide with you for forever. In fact, Jesus went on to say in that same passage, he said, I will come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And that's what he was talking about to end Matthew's gospel in chapter 28, at the end of verse 20, when Jesus told his disciples, all of us, he said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And again, I can't underscore how important this is because the battle belongs to the Lord. And really, if we don't understand that he is with us in every situation, every trial, every adversity, well, it's going to be very hard to trust him to give us victory. Notice what, again, what God said in verse 5. He told Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you. In other words, stand against you all the days of your life. Now, that's a great promise. But, you know, inherent in that promise of victory is the promise of conflict. You can't have victory without conflict, right? So when God promises us victory, what's he also promising us? Conflict. I don't know if I like that part. Well, you can't have victory without conflict. You can't have victory without warfare. There's no victory without battles. You know, some Christians don't want any conflict in their Christian life. They think, ideally, you know, the ideal Christian life is that, you know, God just simply just keeps pouring out the blessing from heaven. You know, I never have, there's never a, sun, a rainy day in my life. There's never no adversity, no trials, no enemy attacks. Just, you know, we live in this, I don't know, this euphoric, you know, kind of a utopian existence where, you know, everything is great all the time. Even if that were possible on the earth, which it's not because God never promises that. That wouldn't develop us as soldiers. I mean, we're called soldiers of Christ in the New Testament. That implies warfare and battles. If there's no battles, if there's no warfare, why in the world are we called soldiers? And if we are soldiers, which we are, and we have battles to face, which we will, then you know what? We need to be toughened up. We need to go through things that will train us how to be soldiers. You know, when I think of this, I think of another story that you all all know about. Remember when Jesus in the Gospels fed the 5,000? 
It says there were 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 20,000 people. He fed them all with five small barley crackers and a couple of small pickled fish. And he just kept multiplying them and fed all these people. And they took up, what, 12, uh, 12 baskets full of leftovers. And then it says it, it, he sent the crowd away and the, he told his disciples to immediately get into the boat because they were on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Get into the boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. Well, he went up on top of a mount to pray. Now, while he was up on top of that mount praying, because it was Passover time, there was a full moon out. And a violent windstorm arose in the Sea of Galilee. These were common uh, in this region. It wasn't a rainstorm with clouds and thunder and lightning. It was a windstorm, which meant the skies were still clear. And because there was a full moon out, it says, as they were struggling, because they were struggling for their lives, folks, this windstorm was so fierce, they even, these seasoned fishermen thought they had had it. In fact, they had struggled for eight hours trying to row across the Sea of Galilee, and had only gotten four miles halfway across. They were exhausted. They were, they were feeling, no doubt, uh, hopeless. I mean, where's Jesus when you need him? <laughs> okay. He sends us out into this, uh, onto this Sea of Galilee, and he's not even with us. Well, he was watching the whole thing, Mark tells us, from the mount, looking down, praying for them. And right about the time, it says the fourth watch in the night, somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., when I'm sure all hope was gone, they, had, they just resigned themselves to the fact they were going under, they were going to lose their lives. This was it. Suddenly, Jesus comes walking out to them on the Sea of Galilee. At first, they thought he was a ghost. He says, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter said, well, Lord, if it's you, can I come out and walk to you on the water? Jesus said, well, come on. So Peter steps out of the boat, and he starts walking on the water. Now, I don't know how many steps he took before he realized, what am I doing? I, you know, I can't do this. And the Bible says he saw the size of the waves and what was going on. He took his eyes off the Lord, got his eyes on the circumstance, and he began to sink. He cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And Jesus reaches down and pulls him out. They walk back to the boat. And Jesus said to Peter, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? And it says when they got to the boat, immediately he was on the shore. And his disciples, it says they fell on their faces and worshipped him. Because they did not realize how powerful he really was. That's a good lesson for all of us. Do you realize that Jesus Christ purposely sent those guys out into that storm? He knew a storm was coming. He's God. He purposely sent them out into that storm. Why? To teach them some valuable lessons that they would never have learned except for the fact that he had sent them out into that storm. And right about the time they had come to the end of their strength. How many times are we going through storms in our lives that have us so exhausted? We're at the end of our strength. We feel like we're goners. We're going under, man. There's no hope. But if we will just trust that our Lord is with us, he'll come to us in that situation. He will come to us. And you know what? He will deliver us. And we will come to realize through the experience how powerful he really is. That will increase our worship of him. And what does God desire? He desires us to be true worshipers. But here's one of the things I want you to see. You know, when Peter said to the Lord, Lord, if it's really you, can I come out and walk thee on the water? I'm sure the other disciples would probably roll in their eyes. Oh, here we go, this Peter. Paul, always shooting his mouth off, you know. So Peter gets out of the boat and walks, I don't know, maybe a few feet, a few yards, and begins to sink. He takes his eyes off the Lord. And Jesus rescues him. When they got back to the boat, possibly in the hearts of the other disciples, there was a, a criticalness. 
Oh, see, big shot. I'm going to walk on water. <laughs> see what happened, Peter? Let me just say this to you. Peter takes a lot of heat from people, doesn't he? You know, Peter takes a lot of criticism from people. But I'll tell you what. I appreciate Peter because at least he was willing to step out of the safety zone. At least he was willing to step out of the comfort of the, of the boat to trust the Lord to do the impossible. And, yeah, he sunk after a while because he got his eyes off the Lord. And yet for a while he, he experienced what it was like to do the impossible. He walked on water. You know, it's easy to stay in the comfort zone. It's easy to stay in the safety of the boat, never take any steps of faith, never really allow God to call you to himself in a way that you've never experienced before. It's easy to be there and not ever get out of my little comfort zone and criticize everybody else to take steps of faith. And even if they begin to sink at times, you know what, for a while they experience the power of God. We have to understand that. Because I believe the story of, the, of Joshua and the children of Israel is just that kind of story. How God was calling his people to do an impossible thing that they were not going to be able to do in their own strength. Just like we cannot do the things that God is calling us to do in our own strength. But you know what? Playing it safe to me is not an option. It's not an option. I'd rather sink at times. I'd rather step out in faith and try new things for the Lord. And sure, maybe I fall, maybe I sink. But at least for a while, I got to experience God using me in a way that people that play it safe never experience. So you've got to look at conflict and trials and adversities and so on, not as God abandoning you, but God using these things to come to you, actually. He wants you to know how powerful he really is. And so every victory, excuse me, every adversity is an opportunity to experience victory. And listen to me, every conflict will end in victory if we do what God says here. And I say here, I'm meaning verses 6 to 9. Now, before we read those, I just want to point out something. Four times in these verses, actually three times in verses 6 to 9. Once in verse 6 where God says, be strong and of good courage. Once in verse 7 where he says, only be strong and very courageous. In verse 9 he says, have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage and, not, and do not be afraid. And then once again in verse 18 he repeats it, be strong and of good courage. Four times in this little passage here. God tells Joshua don't be afraid, be strong, and be of good courage. Why did God do that? Obviously, because Joshua was afraid, right? He was afraid. Well, you say, well, what was he afraid about? Two things. He was afraid because he had some big shoes to fill. Secondly, he was afraid because he had some big enemies to face. Let's look at those for just a moment. First of all, Joshua was afraid because he had some big shoes to fill. I mean, it must have been extremely intimidating for Joshua to follow in Moses' footsteps. Think about that for a minute. I mean, Moses was without a doubt one of the greatest and most revered leaders in Israel's history. I mean, here was a man that God had called, that God had given incredible power to, to work miracles, to bring plagues upon Egypt, to part the Red Sea, to do all kinds of things. This is the guy you're following. That's quite an act to follow, if I can put it that way. I mean, Moses was a mighty prophet of God. He spoke to God face to face. In fact, at the end of Deuteronomy chapter 34, after Moses gives his farewell address, and now the Holy Spirit uses somebody to add a little footnote. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 34, starting in verse 10. But since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, 
whom the Lord knew face to face and whom the Lord used in miraculous ways to work his will. I'd like to follow that act. Okay. I mean, for a pastor like me, it would be like taking over for a guy like Spurgeon or Moody or somebody like that. How are you going to fill those shoes, right? You can't. You don't even try. I mean, how do you replace a leader that everyone pretty much feels is irreplaceable? In a very real way, I'm sure Joshua felt like he could never measure up to the kind of leader Moses had been, a man that God had been so powerfully with. And that's why I believe the Lord tried to reassure him in verse 5 when he said, as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with you. What are you afraid for? And yet I'm sure Joshua still felt very inadequate, as I would have, no doubt, because in his mind, again, nobody could have replaced Moses. Now, I'm sure probably that the people of Israel felt the same way. The only one who didn't feel like Moses was irreplaceable was God. And again, he's the only one that matters. Because we read in verses 1 and 2 again, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children, to the children of Israel. Notice, there is no sense of worry in God's voice. I mean, he's not wringing his hands wondering what he's going to do and who he's going to get to lead this great people of his, now that Moses is dead. He simply says, Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. All right, son, it's your turn. Let's go. We've got work to do. That's all it was. The work of God didn't grind to a halt. The plan of God wasn't put on hold while another leader like Moses could be located. So God's precious work could continue. You know why? Because none of it depended on Moses. None of it depended on Moses. You see, we tend to honor human instruments, don't we? We're prone to lift up and exalt men that God uses instead of the God who uses men. A.W. Tozer said, and I quote, When a man of God dies, nothing of God dies. When a man of God fails, nothing of God fails, end quote. I think it's one of the greatest lessons in ministry, that the work of God never depends on people. All I am, all I can ever hope to be, is an instrument in the hand of God. An instrument he uses to do his work, just like a surgeon uses a scalpel to do his work or her work. And once the operation is successful and everything is done, nobody picks the scalpel up and praises the scalpel. What a wonderful scalpel. Oh, what a great scalpel. They praise the surgeon who used the scalpel. The same is true with us. All I can be is an instrument in God's hands. He does the work through me and deserves all the credit and glory. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 to 29, he purposely chooses the weak, the foolish, the base, the insignificant to do his work through. Why? Because when he works through us, he gets all the glory. And God wants the glory for the work that he does. And God helped that man or woman who God begins to use, whose ministry God begins to bless, who forgets this and begins to listen to the accolades, begins to, to, to absorb the praise, and begins to think, well, maybe I am something pretty special. Oh. God will take you, stick you on a shelf, let you collect dust up there for a while to get your head straight. Just like Nebuchadnezzar, this great Babylon which I have built, boom, on the spot struck like an animal for seven years until he came to his senses and realized the God of heaven has done these things. And you know what? God uses us. And I'm so thankful that God uses us. I know it's him. I know it's not me. 
And if the day ever comes when we begin to think it is us, we begin to think that God's work depends on us in any way, shape, or form, guess what? God will move on and use somebody else. Because the man or woman that stays humble does not think more highly of themselves than they ought is the man or woman that God is going to continue to use. You know, I think of Paul the Apostle, the greatest apostle, missionary, evangelist, and theologian that's ever lived. He simply referred to himself as a bond servant of Jesus Christ. And I believe that's one of the reasons that God used Paul. Because he always kept himself in the proper perspective and recognized all he was was a servant in the hands of God. That's it. So first of all, Joshua was afraid because he believed he had some big shoes to fill. Secondly, he was afraid because he had some big enemies to face. And you know what? We've talked about this many times. But if you don't understand this, you're not going to really get the impact of the book of what follows. Do you realize that in the land of Canaan, there were little literal giants? In fact, Goliath, who was a nine and a half foot Philistine giant, came from a family of giants. He had brothers. They were all giants. In fact, the people in that whole area were literal giants. I mean, these people were big. I mean, Goliath was nine. Can you imagine a nine and a half foot guy and now and a whole army of these guys? Looking down at you as they're coming out. And what makes it even worse, it says the Bible says they lived in fortified cities. They drove iron chariots. And they had a reputation as fierce warriors. Well, you can imagine. Big guys like that, yeah. And yet, a small boy named David took a sling and a stone. And by the grace of God, brought Goliath down. Because our God is a giant slayer. I think God probably coined the phrase, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Now look, Joshua was like us. James said uh, of, of um, uh, Elijah. Uh, he was a man of like passions like we are. I mean, these were not somehow superhuman people. They were just like us. And Joshua was scared. And you know what? It's okay to be scared when you're facing a giant in your life. Now listen, I know God says don't be scared. Don't be afraid. But I don't think God was saying to Joshua, you know what, be a robot. Drain yourself of all emotion. That's not realistic. I believe what God was saying to Joshua is, Joshua, don't let your fear control you. Hey, we all come across situations, whatever the giant might be, and there's all kinds of problems and crises and adversities that we face that seems to be no solution to and no way out of. They're a giant. Maybe it's a physical issue or a financial problem or a marital issue or whatever it might be. We're going to face giants in our lives. Situations are going to scare us. It's okay to be afraid. It's not okay to let your fear control you where you run away and give up. Let me say this to you. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the control of fear. Courage is not the absence of fear. We think that courageous people have no fear. They have fear, but they don't let their fear control them. Our men and women on the battlefield, as we speak, face danger every day. Life and death situations. You don't think they get afraid? Sure they do. Do they run? No. Because they do not let their fears control them. Courage is not the absence of fear. It is the control of fear. And we have to understand that. Maybe it's not a crisis, but a calling that has got you fearful. 
a calling that God has laid upon your life for a certain ministry, and you're thinking, how am I ever going to do that? How, how can I do that? Lord, I, I don't have it in me to do what you're calling me to do. Of course you don't. I'm afraid, Lord. I know you are. Are you going to let your fear control you and cause you to bail out and run away? Or are you going to keep your eyes on me? See, that's the issue, isn't it? You know, for those of you who are, have been coming to this church for any length of time, you've, you've heard me tell my personal testimony. And part of it is that when I was a brand new Christian, now, I got saved through the ministry of Pastor Chuck Smith who pastors Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California. I got connected with Chuck because my family moved out there in the uh, late 70s, and uh, <clears throat> my mom started to send me Pastor Chuck's cassette tapes because she had just gotten saved. And uh, so I listened to those tapes, and I eventually gave my heart to Christ, my wife and I. And we went out there just a few months after we had gotten saved for, to visit my family, and of course we went to Calvary Chapel and I remember sitting there one Sunday morning as Pastor Chuck was up there teaching the Word in front of several thousand people. I remember thinking to myself how awesome it would be to be able to teach the Word of God to people. But I know one thing. There is no way I can do that because I grew up with a paralyzing fear of public speaking. And we're talking paralyzing fear. I remember numerous times in, in school where I had to get up in front of the class and read my paper I couldn't even do it. I was hyperventilating so much. Sweating, hyperventilating. I mean, it was a, just a real phobia for me. And so I'm thinking, well, there's just no way that God could ever use me like that, but I'm sure he's got other plans for me. Well, sure enough, God led me into the ministry. Now, those of you who have been coming for any length of time, you, you remember how there, was, there were many times when I would get up here, you could tell I was, I was really fighting a panic attack. I mean, I'm sweating, I look pale, you know, I'm, I'm breathing hard, you know, I'm just really, fu and, and, you know, it, it, it really got me down at one point, and I really remember crying out to the Lord, I said, Lord, why would you call me into a ministry like this, with this horrible, debilitating fear of public speaking, Lord, is this some kind of a cruel joke, what are you doing here, and the Lord says, I'm humbling you, see, I didn't covet speaking engagements, because I was terrified to speak in front of people. But here's the thing. I purposed by God's grace, I would not let my fear control me. But I would never run away from an opportunity to preach God's word if God opened the door. Even though I was terrified. I kept keeping my eyes on the Lord. I kept trusting that, Lord, if you open this door, you're going to give me the grace. And sometimes, just before I would come up to the platform, I would be going through this panic attack. And I just kept repeating, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I remember many times just feeling all that anxiety, all that fear just drain out of me. It was the grace of God. You know, Moses felt the same way when God says, Moses, go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses said, Lord, you're going to be kidding. I don't talk so good. Send Aaron. You can take Aaron with you, but you're going to go. You've got my guy. And so Moses obeyed the voice of God. Yeah, he was scared, but God gave him grace. To do what God was calling to do. Just like God gives all of us grace to do. What he's calling us all to do. And after years of praying. And it took years. At one point God just took it away. But it was during all those years. Where I was just. I had to so trust God. I had to so lean on him for strength. I was terrified. And God was gracious. He just kept using that to humble me. To the point where I was totally dependent on him. As Paul said. When I'm weak I'm strong. 
So no matter what the giant is in your life that you're facing today or you're going to face in the future, because we're all going to face giants periodically in our lives. And those giants could be, again, financial. They could be physical. Uh, they could be marital. We're facing a giant right now, aren't we, as Americans? So a lot of people that look at this economy and the deficit we're involved in and are terrified of what the future is going to hold. So what do you do? You run away? You find some other country to live in? Or do you stand there, trust God, pray, and cling to his promises? I don't know what's going to happen to our country, and we pray that God will be merciful to us. But if our country starts crumbling down around us, you know what? If you've put your foot on the solid ground of God's word and his promises, you've given your heart to Christ, you know what? Though everything around you crumbles, you will stay standing. Figuratively speaking, of course. We have to keep our eyes on him. He's the only sure thing in a world of illusion. He's the only real thing that we got. And so, first of all, if we're going to know victory, we have to believe that God is with us. Secondly, we have to obey what God has said. For this, I want to read verses 6 to 9. Where God said to Joshua, be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. In fact, I have named this Study and the one that will follow it, the secret of success. Because God says it right here. This is the secret for success in the Christian life. Verse 9, have I not commanded you, be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And these verses God lays out to Joshua, really into all of us, four conditions for victory. These are Four conditions for victory sandwiched between two promises of victory. But these four conditions are conditional promises. A conditional promise is where God says, if you will do your part, then I will do my part. If you will obey what I've told you to do, then I will fulfill the promise I've given to you. And so here we find the secret of success based on four conditional promises. Let me read them to you. That Joshua was, first of all, to know God's word. Secondly, Joshua was to talk about God's word. Thirdly, Joshua was to meditate on God's word. And fourth, Joshua was to obey God's word. And God is telling us, if you will do these four things, if you will be faithful in doing your part, I will then give you victory. I promised you victory. But here, you fulfill your part, and then I will come in, and I will fulfill my part and give you the victory I promised you. Now, we will look at these next time. I just want to lay them out for you today so you begin to meditate on them, think about them, read the passage over and over so that you're ahead of me. So when we get to this passage next time, you know, you've committed it to your heart. You've, you've gone over it numerous times. And out of these come the four conditions that we need to fulfill if God's promise of victory is going to be a reality in our lives. Joshua was to know the word. Joshua was to talk about the word. He was to meditate on the word. And he was to obey the word. Let me just end by saying this. We enter in 
to our personal promised land, as someone has said, through an act of faith, an obedient heart, and an empowering spirit. Through an act of faith, an obedient heart, and an empowering spirit. You see, God has promised us that no one, not even Satan himself, will be able to stop you and I from being victorious in the Christian life. In fact, God is promising that no one will be able to hold you back or hinder you from taking full possession of all the promises that God has given to you. Nobody except for one person. You and me. Jesus said, against my church, the gates of hell will not prevail. So the devil and his demons cannot keep us from entering into the promises God has given to us and enjoying the fullness of the Spirit in our lives. The only person that can hinder us from attaining God's fullness for our lives is us. Years ago, I read a little comic strip where the the lead character says, we have met the enemy and he is us. Amen to that. Guys, when you shave in the morning, or women, ladies, when you put the makeup on, you look at yourself in the mirror, just say to yourself real quick, you're the enemy. I'm watching you, pal. You're the enemy. I know that. Keeping a close eye on you today. Look, in that regard, I'm my own worst enemy. I'm the only one that can defeat myself. How? Through doubt? Through disobedience? And a third one is by simply running away and giving up. You know, one of the things that I wasn't going to actually bring out, because I I didn't know if it was going to really fit into the outline, but I thought, well, you know what? It is a very important point. Many, Many of the commentators brought this out. How that Joshua persevered. Joshua was faithful. All the years in the wilderness, he stayed by Moses' side, through thick and thin, right? Through the good times and the bad times. Here was a guy that stuck it out. There's a lot that is said to us in the New Testament about persevering, right? In fact, the Bible says trials are given to us by God in part to to teach us to persevere. Persevere comes from a Greek word that means to hold up under pressure. To hang in there when times get tough and not bail out or run away. For too many of us, as soon as things get a little tough, we're gone, man. That's it. I'm done. I mean, it's so sad. I was talking to one of our missionaries in Africa who heads up far-reaching ministries, a ministry we support here. And he was telling me that of all the people that sign up to go to Africa, of men and women, what did he say now? He said, I don't know, 80% were women. And of the people that hang out there and and make it and, and don't get frustrated and leave because it's hard, 90% of the women stay. And I said, God bless the ladies, but what is going on with the guys? He said, I'm not sure. He said, maybe it's part of a woman's nature. She's a nurturer and, and there's you know, children and stuff that we're dealing with. And I thought, well, God bless the women. What's going on with the guys? We need to learn to persevere. We need to learn to hang in there. How is God going to ever give us victory if we quit at the first sign of trouble or adversity? I don't know what you're facing this morning, but you know what? Don't give up. Don't give up. Unless, of course, you know that God's not in it and you got into something and and now you're realizing, I don't think God's in this. Pray about that. Make sure he's not in it. Because the assumption is, well, if things get really hard, God must not be in this. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. Joshua hung in there. He learned to persevere those years in the wilderness. And I believe that was one of the reasons why God did lay his hand on Joshua. And I think that God is looking for men and women who are men and women that say to God, Lord, I'm in this for the long haul. 
I'm committed to you, Lord, no matter where you take my life, whether it's good times, hard times, I'm going to stay faithful. I'm going to hang in there. And I believe that's the attitude, that's the quality God is looking for when he lays his hand on a, on a servant to do a great work. You have proven yourself faithful. Now come, we have greater work to do. May God give us the grace to learn these principles. So important, so foundational, yet in many ways so forgotten. Father, we just thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Father, for teaching us important spiritual principles and lessons to the lives of men like Joshua and the children of Israel in general. And Father, it's one thing to know these things. It's another thing to apply them and to walk in these truths. Give us grace, Lord, to first of all walk through the word, to, to learn the promises you've given, and then to stand, stand on them by faith and claim them as our own and say, God, you've promised me this. I know that you will bring it forth. I praise you for what you're going to do, even before I ever see anything happening. And so, Lord, work in us. Work in us, Lord. I come from a long line of quitters, Lord. Thank you for the grace, and it's totally your grace, that's kept me in ministry for 30 years. I know that's you. But, Lord, your grace is available to all of us to finish the work you're calling us to do. Paul the Apostle said at the end of his life, I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. Lord, give us grace to make that the thing that we can say at the end of our lives. We just praise you and thank you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.